Welcome to The Map of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 55th episode, it's the return of Melissa Bright. Along the way, we'll discuss controversial pizza opinions, childhood food aversions, and even ye gods, Yuri on Ice. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the mat of you. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is Melissa Bright. And since I didn't do a proper intro last time, I am, I'm not anybody famous. I don't have a podcast or anything. I don't even blog anymore, but I am a musician. I am a cat lover. I have four cats. I live in New York City and yeah, that's me. I'm a beautiful and unique snowflake because... Because Mr. Rogers told you so. Because Mr. Rogers told me so. Yeah. I stand by that. Yeah, and anyone who wanted to know a little bit more about Melissa can jump back to episode 37, Forbidden Media and Dream Machines, featuring Melissa Bright. But as this is a return episode, things are going to be a little bit looser than they were. And you said specifically you wanted to tell me about a very good day that you had today and how it was a very New York day. So please, go ahead. So my birthday is on Sunday, and I wanted to have a nice long weekend, so I took today off, played a little hooky. Station hooky. It's totally, like, in the calendar and everything. I decided I was going to go to the Union Square Green Market, which is the, I think, oldest and largest of the green markets in New York City, which there are many. They're everywhere. But I'd never been to the big one. So I decided I was going to have a treat yourself day. I got a bunch of cash and I went down there and basically bought my own body weight in fruit. (laughs) It's the middle of the summer. So I got some peaches and blueberries and blackberries and raspberries and ground cherries. I got some maple candy and I bought an absolutely gorgeous bottle of bourbon. There's a little stand where they had like several different kinds of bourbon and other things that they do still. There was some rye whiskey. There was one that was maple flavored, but their regular bourbon, I absolutely fell in love with. So I bought some of that. And then I came home and I got a, also got a giant tomato and I came home and I sat on my... What, just, just one giant tomato? <laughs> yeah, well... Our fridge is in flux because we just moved, so I didn't want to get a whole bunch. And also, I was running out of bag room. I was having to haul this all back on the train. So I went back, and I sat on my new balcony, and I had this amazing lunch of fresh tomato, fresh peaches, blueberries, and some halloumi cheese, and it was perfect. And then I went and had a nap. It was one of those things where, you know, it's not quite a tourist destination, but it's somewhere that's been on my New York list for a while since I moved here. And it was really nice to just take a day. It's also, there's something nice about going on a work day. It has a very different feel than going on the weekend. And so going in the middle of the work day, going down to Union Square, there was a whole bunch of people already down there. And just immersing myself in food. It was it was really perfect. 
as someone who was recently out of work for a couple of months, I was made redundant and then we were getting ready for the baby before I got my new job. Yeah, you're right. There's a very different feel when you're going to something that is very clearly most often a weekend place and you kind of go in like in the middle of a work day, like on a Tuesday or something. Yeah. And yeah, I think you're seeing a different selves of the people who work there. So I had the same experience shortly after we moved here. I got laid off. And so I had a few months where I was without a job and I did a lot of my exploring then, you know, I went and did a lot of walking over the Williamsburg Bridge and went and explored different parts of town. I decided, you know, once a week I was going to start going to different libraries around Manhattan just as a way to see different neighborhoods with the destination in mind. It is very different going during the workday. It's got a different, like the air smells different and the energy is different and it's not better or worse. It's a completely different world. So it's really nice when I can take a day off. I mean, a day off is always nice, but you know, when I can take a day off and really get out there and kind of explore. I'm also really lucky that I live in a place where I don't know if you can ever be done exploring if you have the will to do it. There's always something new to see here. And in the last two years, I've only scratched the surface of the interesting things about this city. So it's always fun when I get to do that. Yeah, totally. The exciting thing about being in this apartment is I know our last recording, there were some places where the audio broke up and it was because our window units kicked on. Ah. And now we've got central air, so there should be no little power surges. Oh, good. Yeah, and I realize I've become one of those people who spent a week in New York once and then rhapsodizes about how great it is. But I feel like, like, again, you were just talking about this stuff, and, I'm, and you said Williamsburg Bridge, and I went, I walked across the Williamsburg Bridge. I had to look it up to make sure because it's like there are a lot of bridges in New York. Did it hurt when you walk over it? No. That's the question. It didn't? Okay, then it wasn't the Williamsburg Bridge. That's the thing. I looked at the location and it was, but why would it hurt? The Williamsburg Bridge is at such a sharp incline. Ah. that people who are used to walking over like the Brooklyn Bridge or, you know, not used to walking much at all, they walk over the Williamsburg Bridge. And like the first time I walked over it, I was like, I may die. My legs may just give out (laughs) because it's so steep and it's extra long. And I still haven't gone round trip on it. I had to take the train back. So like it's a workout. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I could make a joke about how you have to, you know, earn your arrival in Williamsburg, but uh, nah, it's not even worth it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm not one of those gatekeeper people. You yeah. know, there's always the thing, oh, you know, you have to live here for 10 years before you're a real New Yorker, blah, blah, blah. I got into a cab with a guy who grew up in Brooklyn, older man. And he's like, you know what? People always say, you know, you have to live here for 10 years. That's bullshit. He's like, you live here for one year. So if you can make it past the first year, you're in. <laughs> you're a real New Yorker. I'm like, well, thank you. It's something I've discussed with a previous guest where it's like that weird ephemeral thing of authenticity, being a local and all these things. And it used to be that I would think it was three layers of strata. Like you could remember what was there three things ago. Like you can look at something and go, okay, it's a convenience store now. But before that, it was a sandwich shop. And before that, it was a barber shop. And I went there once and I didn't get a very good haircut. So I never went back. And clearly it didn't last. But I think the real local thing is to have things change so much that you stop caring about it. Yeah. Where it's yeah. like you see, oh, it's new. Oh, I guess that other thing. What was it? I don't remember. Was it like a kosher sandwich shop? It's, I, I don't know. Or no, no, no. It was the Chinese food. I don't care. Whatever. It's it's this now. <laughs> yep. In Houston, the measure of whether or not you'd been there for long enough was one of two things. Either you remember when this neighborhood was good and now it's bad or the opposite. <laughs> remember when this neighborhood was terrible and now it's really expensive. Yep. Yep. Or, oh, I remember when this was a field. <laughs> Because Houston is so spread out that so much of it is former fields 
that have been converted to suburbs. And like I remember when I was a kid, we lived on kind of the edge of Northwest Houston where everything past us was fields and you got some other town. It's been a really long time since it's been a field. And so I tell people that and they're like, I don't ever remember that. I'm like, well, that's because I'm almost 40. And wow, that's... I think that's the crossover of going from established local to old person sitting in a rocking chair going, I remember when this was all orange trees, as far as the eye could see. The difference is that I don't really, like, it doesn't bother me. You know, it bothers me when a good neighborhood goes bad. But it doesn't bother me when things change unless it's, like, my favorite thing. That that bothers me, obviously. The character of a neighborhood changing, I'm not one of those people that sits and go, oh, it's such a shame. It used to be this, and now it's this. It's just the way, it's that way everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not unique to any one city. Like, you know, I do love hearing the stories when I talk to people who've lived in Brooklyn for, you know, 20 years. And they're like, oh, you know, you used to not be able to go to this part of town at night, and now you know, it's super expensive. Everybody wants to live here. And I love stories like that. Gentrification is obviously a really complicated topic. But, but I like to hear about places changing because if it doesn't change, it's going to die. Yeah, totally. Although I am now thinking of a series of commercials where it's like, do you remember when you could go to a greengrocer and buy a tomato as big as your fist? Melissa Bright remembers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, to me, that usually means that a person is really asking for me to get into a conversation about commercial farming, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, you don't want to start that conversation with me. You could still get giant tomatoes, but you have to pay more for them. Yeah, it's funny because Sydney is really a city of villages. Now, you've got lots of little communities in and around, like four blocks can be a type of, you know, X town. And, you know, you go to Petersham and that's where all the Portuguese charcoal chicken shops are. And the ones that look like takeaway shops, but you go in, they're actually a sit-down restaurant if you go around the corner, those kind of things. But what's funny is that you talk about, you know, the gentrification of stuff. And I've been here long enough to notice that in places like Newtown and, and more to a degree. But here's the thing. I kind of like it when it's right on the cusp of that because it's not terrible anymore, but it's still terrible enough to be interesting and fun but also you can get like good food and you know occasionally buy something nice but before it kind of crests that wave and goes straight over because when I first got here uh, my ex was very clear and she was like oh well Newtown's still cool but it used to be that a place called Balmain or Roselle were cool and now they're completely gentrified and full of yuppies and so no one goes there and then where I live now which is Leichhardt was known for being sort of the Italian district it's where all the Italian restaurants were it's where the Italian forum was and all these things where they still have the cultural festivals and stuff but now if you go past the Italian forum all the shops are shuttered up like thing is people still go there because it's sort of a meeting place and you go and have a coffee and that's where the library is and where we go there because there's a, a breastfeeding clinic there once a week that Kimiko has to go to. And so you look around and she's like, I remember when I was a teenager and everyone was always so excited to go to the Italian forum and you'd get nice food and you get gelato afterwards and there were, you know, there was clubs and dancing and stuff. And now it's just sad. So it's like you have that full bell curve of on the way up, cresting the wave, wave going over and then flat again within walking distance of two different areas. I was thinking if you live somewhere long enough, you start to see not just the character of the neighborhood change over time, but also things like the mall becoming obsolete. Mm -hmm. The area that I grew up in in Houston is very suburban and there were like six malls within a 20 minute radius. Everything was built around the mall. Like the movie theater was there. All the restaurants were near the mall. That was like prime real estate. Because the mall is dying, those areas are dying. It's an interesting challenge for developers to think about how, you know, how we can reconfigure this. One of them 
completely raised them all to the ground and built a not a strip mall but a nicer version of a strip mall like an open air shopping situation there and it's done much better than the dying mall did in the stores around it mm. but yeah i think it's another thing you see once you live a place long enough is you just start to see people's habits change and that means that the infrastructure changes sometimes not for the better well, I mean, like I can think back to Newtown and think how, oh, well, the Town Hall Hotel or the Townie, as it was known for those of last resort that couldn't get in anywhere else, had an upstairs that kind of looked over onto an awning that looked over onto a derelict old train station, which is now a shiny new train station. Since they've renovated the train station, they have put up a wall. So, for example, someone like my friend James could not step out of that upper window and dance along the balcony as bouncers frantically screamed at him to come back inside before he killed himself. <laughs> And yeah. there's no longer a terrible corrugated iron taco shack that would serve you the equivalent of supermarket tacos with ketchup on them. Ooh. Exactly. That's why it's not there anymore. Oh. Like, it, I remember, yeah. like, walking up and just ordering, like, yeah, two tacos, please. And he gives it to me. I took a bite. I'm like, what is that? What, what, what is that's, this? What have you done? That's horrific. I am a ketchup fan. I want to state this. I'm a mm. ketchup fan. But there are certain things that ketchup just doesn't go on. Oh, like my whole body. I don't know if you like feel my whole body is just cringing right now at the thought of ketchup on tacos. Not Ooh. just not just ketchup on tacos, but tacos that were made with unflavored beef. So just like beef cooked in a frying pan with fat. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> okay, there was a tweet today. What is the one food thing that you would physically fight somebody over? Mm-hmm. My response to that was, if you're not going to make iced tea with barbecue then you should be banned from barbecue like powdered and bottled is not acceptable if you're not going to actually make good iced tea with your barbecue then don't be in the barbecue business i'm going to retract that oh yeah and now it's now it's the tacos i will fight somebody who tries to put ketchup and unflavored beef in tacos that is an abomination former guest of the show matt wilson has very strong opinions about barbecue being from north carolina and oh i loved that episode oh, thank you you know i've opinions about barbecue but i always love to hear you know i'm not going to fight anybody over barbecue opinions but yeah i love to hear about it and he said if you go into a barbecue place and there is not a pitcher of sweet tea on the table you should probably turn around and leave <laughs> yes i will put a star by that to say i grew up in houston so sweet tea is not really a thing there it's starting to become a thing which is weird but you know so i preferred non-sweet tea but yes like good iced tea in whatever however you define that sweet or unsweet is essential to barbecue it's an affront if you don't have it <laughs> like if you're even if you make it but your tea is really bad or it's old or obviously your carafe needs cleaning out it's offensive <laughs> i would rather somebody ask for sauce to put on their brisket than <laughs> have bad iced tea or no iced tea at all. I don't understand those people. So the question is then, Melissa Bright, I gotta ask you now, what are your pizza and hot dog opinions as a New Yorker? I'm gonna hurt a lot of New Yorkers with this. Uh First of all, I don't understand this whole pizza by the slice. Who just eats one slice of pizza? (laughs) Nobody. They're pretty big slices. They're big, but they're not that filling. They're so awkward to eat. And okay, this is the other thing. They're not that good. Ooh, shots fired. No, I won't, say, I won't say that New York pizza is bad. There is a lot of amazing pizza here. Amazing. But the thin crust, floppy fold style pizza, I have yet to find one that excites me. I think it is all that I've had so far is all crappy malt pizza. I'm sorry. Ooh. It's not It's not exciting. If you're going to give me thin crust, I want it to be crispy. And it's not. It's not ever crispy. The pepperonis are always laid on at the last minute, so the pepperonis aren't crispy. 
Oh, and if yeah. you're see, so for me, pepperoni is the essential ingredient on pizza, besides obviously cheese sauce and crust. And if you're not going to make it crispy, what is the point? All right, listeners, I know I have a bunch of you in New York. If you want to send your pizza opinions to Clutter now, and Kindle. Let me, <laughs> and let, me, let, me, let me follow that up by saying, again, I've had a lot of amazing pizza here. But it's all either Sicilian style, which is the sort of pan pizza where it's slightly you know, deep, not deep dish, but a thicker crust with the nice little crispy pepperoni cups on it, which is probably why I like it. Or the the true sort of Italian style pizza where it's wood fired, you got a nice chewy crust with, you know, thin in the middle, not a ton of cheese. There's a couple of really great places that we love called Motorino. I think they've got a few of them. And ours was obviously in Williamsburg. And the other one that we've recently discovered delivers to our new apartment is called Roberta's. And both of those places make exceptional pizza. And I think they've both been very highly praised in various publications for being like the best pizza in New York. So there's definitely good pizza here. But the pizza that you get at like the places that sell them by the slice, I'm sorry, I think it's trash. I think it's all crappy malt pizza. Show me some that's not, I will gladly eat it. If it's not crispy pepperoni, I don't care. So <laughs> yeah. that's my opinion. Sorry. With, with the exception of the few times that we actually went out for pizza, I kind of treated pizza the way I would treat like buying a single sushi roll here. It's the, I have several hours before I'm going to get to eat and I'm going to die if I don't eat something more substantial than a chocolate bar. So mm-hmm. fair. I will buy this one thing and kind of smash it in a hurry and then keep going. Although I did. Yeah. I mean, it has a place. I did do the thing of contrasting Chicago pizza and New York pizza like within a week of each other. And someone's like, which is better? I'm like, they're, they're just entirely different animals. Like I can't eat yeah. them. Well, and, and everybody, you know, I think people who don't live in Chicago think that Chicago pizza is Chicago style deep dish, mm-hmm. which is not. Like most of Chicago pizza that I've had at least is not that. That's the own beast. That is what I think of as pizza pie. That's what my grandma called it, pizza pie. Because it is really sort of deep dish, Chicago-style deep dish is like a true pie structure, which I think is really its own thing. It's like, I don't know, it's like comparing a pork pie to pizza. It's different. We made the mistake of when we were in Chicago, well, it was not a mistake to order from Lou Malnati's because that was really good pizza. The mistake we made is that we assumed that it would be like, you know, pizza in Sydney where you could order pizza and sides. So we like ordered a pizza and like a caprese salad and Kimiko was like, oh, we should order like a little pasta or something so we have some leftovers. That was all a huge mistake. We each had like one 90 degree slice of Chicago deep dish pizza and then we wanted no other food for the rest of the day. Yeah, it's so filling. You asked me about hot dogs. I am a lot more loose with hot dogs. There are basically three hot dogs that I love. I love a Chicago dog. Mm-hmm. I think the combination is really interesting. I love celery salt. So anything with celery salt on it, I'm all about. I love just a regular old hot dog with ketchup, mustard, and onion. Like if I'm making a hot dog at home, that's what I'm going to put on it. I'm not going to do anything fancy. Ketchup, mustard, and onion I think is a good balance. And then I really love a chili dog with proper how do I say it's like hot dog chili like not like chili like you would eat in a bowl that where it's kind of chunky it needs to be really thin and runny and goopy with onions and mustard on it and cheese and James Coney Island in Houston makes a really great chili dog they're small so you can eat two of them and double fist it and (laughs) I just I love that combination too but you got to be in a right the right place for that because they are messy as hell Mm -hmm. and you need to be prepared to drip it everywhere former guest of the show Artley Vasquez swears by Nathan's as the taste of the summer and I found out that Shockingly, there is actually a Nathan's in the Westfield shopping mall next to my work in Parramatta, New South Wales, Australia. So I have had a Nathan's chili dog with those gigantic, like, crinkle-cut fries that they make. And Mm. I have declared it a good thing, although I'm not sure I could have it more than a couple of times 
every six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are a little hard on the system. The one thing I will tell you is that in our house, we are divided on the proper way of preparing a hot dog because my British husband, and I'm going to just call him out for being British Uh-oh. here because I think this is so awful, Uh-oh. insists that boiling hot dogs is the only true way to prepare them. Yeah. Wait, what else? What do you do? <laughs> I'm just, I'm like making a face right now. Oh, boy. Are you, so, oh, wait, are you so grilling them on the, the barbecue? Way, I think that, that's a different thing. Though. That's how you way, cook sausages. The 100% best way to make a hot dog is to grill it. I don't know. If you cannot grill it, the next best way is to make it in the pan. The reason being that you get this really nice caramelization on the outside that changes the flavor of the hot dog. It goes from just being boring sort of meat encased in stuff to being something like, imagine like boiling sausage versus grilling sausage. It's just a completely different flavor experience. It's so much better. Now, I will say, if two of those things are not available to you and the only way you can do it is to boil the hot dog. I actually heard the face you made as you said that. (laughs) I can barely say it having said that. When I was in second grade, I went through this phase where I would eat, not uncooked, because they're all cooked when they come in the package, but unheated hot dogs for lunch. Cold hot dogs. Cold hot dogs. And I would get them in a baggie. My mom would put two, and this was at request. My mom would put two of them in the baggie, and I would just eat them cold. And it grossed (laughs) out everybody in my class. And I loved it so much that they were so grossed out by it. Old hot dogs bright over there. I, I, I can't think about it now. It's so gross. But was like for some reason, I went through the space where like that was the greatest thing. And I think it, the fact that it grossed everybody out just made it even better. <laughs> but yeah, we have this schism in our house about the proper way to make hot dogs. And since I'm the one that is cooking most of the meals, if we do have hot dogs, they will be cooked in the pan because okay. that is the way that they should be prepared. Here's the thing. If you give me a sausage, I will happily grill it. That's the way to do it. Cook it in the pan or grill it. And that's like a chorizo or like a Toulouse sausage or even like a Kransky or something like that. Because you're right, that transfer of flavor, that caramelization, that's what you want. I don't count that as a hot dog unless it's like a Polish sausage that you're having in a hot dog bun. I think it's a completely different animal. But as for childhood hot dog proclivities, because I was a very finicky eater. And so both with, even if it was like hamburgers from McDonald's or hot dogs from a stand or whatever, it was always just ketchup. But when it came to hot dogs at home, I would request cooked hot dogs, no bun, that would then be cut lengthwise in one cut and then across into little half moons that I would dunk into the ketchup. Yeah, I can see that. I think we did some of that too. You know, cut up hot dogs are sort of a time-honored tradition for American kids when they're not old enough to eat complicated food and, you know, dip in ketchup. It would be a key ingredient, which was my main food stuff as a child, which was stuff on a plate, which was whatever my mom could find in the fridge. And so it would be like salami slices and, oh, a little bit of like carrot sticks and a hot dog and some cucumber. Oh, yes, cucumber. That was the other thing. And the thing is, I am going to sound insane when I say this, so please bear with me. Okay. My favorite thing, favorite thing when I was a kid was to take cucumber and cut it up either in like long spears or in like horizontal slices with the peel off. This is important. Okay. And I would take them and I would dunk them into ketchup and put salt and pepper and ketchup on my cucumber and eat it. You know, it sounds strange, but I can respect it. Partly because I was the kid who dunked everything in ketchup. I'm glad to feel that solidarity. But also just the weird, like (laughs) finding weird flavor combinations when you're a kid is really important. Like I remember seeing somebody salt a banana on TV once. Wait, what? And decided I'd try it. And it was, I saw some some cartoon. I saw somebody salt a banana. (laughs) It's so strange. And eat it. And I was like, that sounds really strange. I think I might have to try that. I I remember this very distinctly. It was probably Sesame Street or something. And so I went in and got a banana and put a little salt on it. And it 
you know, it's not something I'm married to, but it was really interesting. It changed the flavor. And I think that's the magic of salt is that it sort of enhances flavors you didn't realize were there. The last time I saw someone try to eat a banana in a different way on the internet, it went badly because Griffin McElroy was playing a game where it showed someone holding a banana in their hand, moving it towards the player's face, and then hearing a crunch and it disappeared, and him getting really angry and saying, that's not how you eat a banana. Uh, so then on a live stream, he went and he ate a banana by just biting the end off. And then because it was the camera was running live, you got to see like the encroaching horror as he realized what he had done yep. and that he was now committed to eating the banana this way. I mean, it's never too late to bail, but you know, once you've eaten it once, it's like, I've done the whole tasting the banana peel thing just because, you know, again, you want to try everything when you're a kid. It's like, I wonder why we don't eat the peel. Oh, that's why. <laughs> and now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Oh man, I miss bananas so much. I developed a latex allergy as an adult, oh, no. and so I can no longer eat bananas, and they're like the perfect snack food. So, See, I'll, I'll be real with you. I've always hated bananas. Really? Yep. By the way, just look at the gift I've just sent you. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he really goes for it. Yep, because you have to get through the skin, and it's horrible. Uh, and then, yeah, he sits, had to sit and chew as tears came to his eyes. <laughs> he also does it woody in first, which is amazing. Like. <laughs> My dude, why do you think you're going to chew that? Because <laughs> that's his commitment to the bit. But no, I've always hated bananas to the point. Hating bananas is up there like on the same level as hating olives with me, which is where I think the addition of them to a food actually ruins the food around them that is touching them. Like, okay, example, if you put black olives on a pizza and then you cook that pizza with the black olives like in there, they cook into the cheese. They cook into anything they touch. So if you then pick up that pizza and go, ugh, olives, and pick off the olives. Tainted. The, like, maybe two centimeters around where that olive was is tainted with olive. I can appreciate that. I I love olives, but they do have a presence. Oh, yes. Right. My husband has another thing we disagree on is olives. He only loves black olives, and I love basically any olive. Please give me giant buckets of olives. But... You know, so whenever we're making something with olives, I have to say, this has olives in it. Do you want me to leave yours, like, off? I'm, I can cook, like, add mine in later. He's like, no, just put it in. <laughs> I'll, I'll deal with it. <laughs> oh, the English. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll hate it, but I'll endure it. He surprised himself. There are some applications of olives that I've put some in, but I could have done it in a certain way. It was like, this is actually really good because you can't taste the olive, but it does something extra to it. It's like spaghetti sauce where you, you know, cut them really fine and throw in a little, like with some capers and things. And He's not at quite as horrified by the prospect as you seem to be. Oh, yes. Well, luckily, there is always, and the thing is, it was said on How I Met Your Mother, but it's still valid because it was back when that show was good. There are always two people in a couple that... One person loves olives and one person hates olives. So if you get olives, that person can eat your olives. Yeah. we And we do the whole thing like he'll pick on you. Do you want my olives? Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Yeah. Kimiko will be in the midst of a conversation when we're out at dinner and then just glance down and her plate has grown a small pile of olives. <laughs> it's, yep. It's like, oh, okay. It's good though. It's very economical to do it that way because, you know, then somebody's happy and somebody else is happy. And nothing goes to waste. I feel like we do need to steer the conversation slightly in the, like... <laughs> the line with media considering this is what the show is technically about although i will happily talk about food differences and, and <laughs> until the cows come home and then probably eat the cows and talk about how the cows are different if they're done in a certain way like if you walk them through barbecue sauce before you cook them which is not true don't do that 
But I will say that recently, because we now have a baby in the house, we are getting through a lot of our movie backlog because Mm -hmm. having a baby requires you to sit in one place for a long time Yep. and not move. Until they start moving, in which case you're never going to be sitting in one place again. At which point you are then in that space, but you are then pacing, you know, gently shaking the baby, walking without rhythm so you don't attract the worm. (laughs) Not a joke. I actually learned that walking like you're in Dune calms my baby down. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) That's that's pretty good. We watched Kubo and the Two Strings. Have you seen that one? Oh, I haven't seen that yet, no. Oh, it's really good. I've heard it's really good. And again, it's stop motion like Coraline or Nightmare Before Christmas kind of thing. It's fantastic. And it also at one point has the most photorealistic sashimi that I have ever seen. To the point where my partner Kimiko, who has been nine months without raw fish because of the baby, saw it and made an audible... noise as she saw it (laughs) and i've never seen her react to food in a cartoon that way before yeah has there been a situation where you've seen food in a movie or a tv show or something and you're just like i don't care i want that food right now a hundred percent so there's a really great scene in charlotte's web Mm -hmm. where templeton the rat has been convinced by Charlotte that he needs to go off and find some new word that Charlotte can weave in her web to try to save Wilbur. And she's like, you know, you just need to go do this thing because, you know, you need to pull your weight around here. And she's like, I don't want to, I'm too lazy. And the goose says, you don't understand. You go to that fairground where she's telling you to go. It is a rat's paradise. (laughs) There is all kinds of amazing leftover food just lying around. And they sing this really fantastic song, which I have memorized and I will not sing for you now. But it is basically Templeton dreaming about all this food. And then he goes and finds out that, if anything, she was underselling how amazing it was. And he runs around and he like piles up all this popcorn and apple cores, banana peels and lots of cotton candy. Like he sings about about all the things that he's piling up as he's doing it. And so you're watching him just making like this sort of Scooby-Doo level sandwich (laughs) of all these leftover bits and eating it all in one gulp. And it's this just decadent little scene. And even though it's like little bits of sloppy leftovers, it is done in that really great 70s animation way that just really makes you want to gorge on it all. Like you really want to go get some popcorn. You want to go get a banana split. You want to go get cotton candy. You want to get ice cream and you just want to eat it. And especially since I was a kid with a huge sweet tooth, that for me, like that was the greatest scene. I ate up not pun not intended (laughs) ate up that scene just it was a dream for me so yeah absolutely that particular scene stands out in my mind as being it always bring even to this day i think brings on massive food cravings (laughs) and i'm trying to remember i think it was like i remember him like just sort of laying back with like a belly the size of himself oh yeah that's the great the ending of it he like starts kind of glooping around he becomes very liquid as he's overstuffed he's not really even walking at this point he's just sort of rolling And I think we've all had that meal Mm -hmm. where we've realized we've eaten far too much and we just like, just like, just let me roll out. I don't think I can walk. (laughs) Like the first time I had Brazilian barbecue, I think that's the first time I've ever waddled out of a restaurant. Like I've never eaten so much in my life. Possibly a huge mistake. There's something about Tresco kind of barbecue like that because they just keep bringing you things. And so, yeah, especially when you, when you don't figure out when to turn the meat off (laughs) with a little car. (laughs) 
and it just keeps coming and coming and then finally it's like too late you realize i need to turn this off and then you got all this meat and then you have the salad bar as well and then you get dessert and then it's like oh god what have i done <laughs> whenever i go to, to, to Tresco, any any of the places usually around like oxford street and stuff i go there and i never remember the meat I only remember the pineapple that they bring around, which is this like, mm -hmm. they have it on the skewer and it's this roasted kind of spiced pineapple. And I swear, like, because pineapple is quite acidic and it always like kind of burns your tongue a little bit. I swear they do it just to make sure you can taste the next course. Yeah. But it's just like the perfect thing. I love it. I wish I could make it at home. There's one scene in Hook. Oh, yes. That I think was meant to be that for kids. Like, I think it was meant to be like this kid fantasy spread. I remember very distinctly thinking how disgusting it looked. Yes, I agree. And realizing, like, this is supposed to look good to me. And instead, this all looks like garbage. For one thing, like, everything was really weirdly colored. And I was not a kid that enjoyed weirdly colored food. I wanted food to be colored like it was. So, like, the blue goop and stuff. And then they started doing the food fight. Nope. Can't be having with that. And I have never been comfortable with a food fight, ever. The only application of food fight was Double Dare, when Nickelodeon had Double Dare and they would like slide through whipped cream and things like that. Even that made me really uncomfortable. But the food fight combined with the blue goop, I was like, you know, I'm sure there are people for whom this is enjoyable and I am not one of them. I don't want to eat for a while after watching this. <laughs> so that was like sort of the anti-Charlotte's web scene for me. Yeah, see... At various points in my childhood, I went to, I think it was at somewhere like the Sheraton. It was like some kind of like hotel food buffet thing with my dad. And then going to the dessert counter and seeing all these things and being like, oh my God, all these look amazing. Like, look, there's that one. It's got whipped cream and it's got that one. It's got like custard. But then finding out that they all like were made with some kind of weird jelly that just tasted wrong. And so I would bite into it thinking it was like a cake and it would be like a trifle or something. And just having that wrongness oh. like... And, and that's what I felt looking at that scene in Hook is I'm like, those look good, but I bet they taste really bad. Like they're not proper desserts. Ew. And that same aversion is why I still can't do pasta salad to this day because I was at a church buffet and potluck type thing and I got what looked like a scoop of like macaroni. Like just like, okay, this is pasta. And I took a bite and instead of it being hot and flavorful, it was cold and tasted like vinegar. And I have never, mm. like, I sat there, like, with my mouth, like, half open the way you do when you don't want to finish a bite. Like, just the... <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're like, can I spit this out without anybody seeing and never speak of it again? Yeah, it's like, we, we were in a church. Is this okay? And then, and then yeah. you realize the joy of pretending to cough into your napkin and then hiding it under the table and letting it go. <laughs> yep. Yep. Sometimes those food surprises are nice, mm -hmm. and sometimes they're just really horrific, and it just ruins you for that food forever. Yeah, like there was a thing on We Have Concerns, which is a very good podcast, where they talked about the different kinds of food aversion that kids have, and how some of it is texture-based, and some of it is actually like taste-based or bitterness, and some of it is experiential. And I would always get hit real hard with the experiential one, where it would be like I would have a bad time with a food, and then that would stick with me so much that I would just be like, I'm not risking that bullshit again. That's not coming anywhere near me. <laughs> for that reason, I was very averse to pot roasts for a long time. And I've told this story on the show before because I would go to, again, church dinners with my mom, the young United Church minister, and be handed this overcooked thing of pot roast that it was cooked at three, but was being served at six and had been warmed in the oven for that entire time and just chewing and chewing and, and like working it around to the back of your throat. And it would hit the back of your throat and your throat would go, nah, and tears would spring to your eyes and you'd almost kind of vom a little bit and it was just like oh, yeah this is hell i hate it 
I was the texture kid and there were a lot of things that I couldn't eat for a really long time, like cooked mushrooms and so like egg noodles I couldn't do. They would sort of make me vomit a little bit. And but but I always went back and tried them again later because I was really stubborn and it sort of offended me that there was food I didn't like. One day I woke up craving mushrooms cooked in butter and I went and made them and they were fine. And so most of those I've gotten over like eggs I still have weird relationship with but thankfully you know i was never one of those kids that was super picky it's funny though that you mentioned eggs because my texture problem is the opposite where i have trouble where there's no texture so for example if i get a sandwich like even now if i get a sandwich where there's a particularly big like glob of avocado in it like i take a bite and i just get nothing but that kind of squishy avocado texture i gag it's the worst and so for a very long time i didn't like mashed potatoes I hated mashed potatoes, and I learned that it was because uh, my mom would use the packet mashed potatoes ooh. and then whip the devil out of them. And then ooh. I would get this thing that would look almost like custard and have no texture at all. It was just this blob, and I could not have it. Then I, enjoy, I came to Australia and learned the joy of, like, a just mashed potato, like, just, just barely mm-hmm. to the point of mash, like, still with chunks in it and, like, bits of, like, skin, and it's really nice. And so with eggs, I hated scrambled eggs. Because it was just these blobs of nothing. Too uniform. Yeah, exactly. And what I learned is that, and I'm sure your husband will attest to this, the full English breakfast is great because then you have enough other stuff. Like you've got bacon and you've got tomato and you've got mushrooms and you've got occasionally baked beans and you've got a bit of chutney or something so that no one bite ever has to be just egg. Yes. Well, and the full English breakfast is fried egg, not scrambled. So you get, ideally you want to fry them in like bacon grease. I'm an iconoclast in that way. So you get the sort of crispy whites and then the runny yolk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still can't do much runny eggs. Like, for example, a soft-boiled egg just hits that no-texture kind of blob button in my head. Like, I was at a very fancy restaurant, and they gave us a a soft-boiled quail egg, and I put it in my mouth, and the face I made made the waiter worry for me. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I I hate it. I hate it so much. But no, I will do the scrambled egg. I will occasionally do the fried egg if it's in, like, a bacon and egg roll. But again, there's enough other stuff to mask that texture that I don't like. And luckily, Sydney is a paradise of delicious bacon and egg rolls because the Australian bacon and egg roll with barbecue sauce can be bought from any... Like, you can walk past a charcoal chicken shop, and if they are open before 12, you will be able to get a bacon and egg roll. It's like the law or something. Hmm. I love stuff like that that's sort of ubiquitous in in a way that's really handy, like the breakfast taco or in Texas, it's the kolache, where pretty much anywhere you go... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. A kolache sounds like a knickknack that sits on someone's fireplace mantle. Oh, like a tchotchke? But where'd you get that kolache? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a, word I, a word I actually really hate. Why do you oh. hate tchotchke? Do you know what a kolache is? No. it's. But why do you hate tchotchkes before? <laughs> uh, I don't hate tchotchkes. I, well, I hate tchotchkes for a different reason. I hate the word tchotchke. It just makes me itchy. <laughs> okay. Like, there's certain words that just like I hate the sound of them, and that's one of them is tchotchke. I'm like, ooh, just call it a knick-knack or something. I don't know. All right. So what's a kolache? Technically, there's two things. And they're a Czech pastry, which is why they're in Texas and ubiquitous because they're <laughs> from the Czech immigrants. It is a, think of like a, a really good yeast general, mm-hmm. but flatter than that and with a fruit filling. Okay. So like peaches or blueberries, or sometimes there's like a, like a cream cheese ones or poppy seed ones. They're really nice yeasty roll with the filling. It's sort of like a, like a roll with butter and jam but all baked in together okay so it looks it looks almost like i've just looked it up it looks almost like a brioche or a pork bun almost like it's got that round shape with the stuff in the middle then you have meat ones which are commonly called kolaches but the proper name for them is klobosnik think of like that same roll dough 
encasing sausage or ham. Sometimes you can get boudin ones. My favorite is sausage and jalapeno and cheese. And it's like the perfect little, it's almost like a pocket pie in that it is a meal that you can hold in one hand and eat. And it's very handy. And they're ubiquitous in Texas. And I didn't really, it didn't really sink in that that was a particularly Texas thing until I came here. And one day I was thinking, oh man, I could just go down to the Dunkin' Donuts downstairs and get a kolache out of habit because there was a Dunkin' Donuts there. And I went down and they had donuts and bagels, which is the most I'm sorry, New York. It's the most boring bread item ever. Shots there's fired. like bagels are not bagels are just they're they're just bread. I mean, there's nothing exciting about a bagel. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm it's, again. I'm I'm a terrible New Yorker in that sense. When you want a kolache and all there is is bagels, it's the worst. And I was like, oh, this is the thing I can't get here. Now, it's not entirely true. There is actually one kolache place here in Brooklyn, and they make amazing kolaches they have really great like salty country ham in them and there's one with sausage peppers and cheese and tons of like seasonal fruit ones but it's a special trip to get them and i think this is something that new york really needs to get on it needs to be the next rainbow bagel because kolaches are the bomb they're so handy and everybody would love them if they just had them available see i'm looking at them now and i'm thinking it almost verges over into like piroshki or like almost like a like a cornish pasty if it was tied up it is Definitely in the Piroshki family, like that sort of bready pocket pie kind of family. Like, not like a pocket pie with short crust, but a pocket pie with like a yeast dough crust. It's definitely very similar to the Piroshki family, which is another thing that we always made in, in our family, weirdly enough, was Piroshki. And tying it back to media, thinking of Piroshki, I'm going to talk about Yuri on Ice for a while and how it has the best food in anime. Okay. Okay, Yuri on Ice. <laughs> <clears throat> is a gay ice skating anime about feelings and everyone should watch it. Okay, it's already on my list. It's amazing and beautiful <laughs> and the music's fantastic and everyone is beautiful snowflakes in love and you just want to hug them all. And basically the story is, is this Japanese skater and he has failed and kind of dropped out of his championships and he is then mentored by his hero who is a Russian skater named Victor. And he brings along Victor's other protege, who is Yuri Plisetsky, who is a referred to as the Ice Tiger of Russia. <laughs> he's a shitty little punk kid, and he's my favorite. And he has piroshkis, which his grandfather used to make him. And after going to Japan, they have katsudon, which is a pork cutlet bowl with like an egg sauce. And the way they draw mm. these pork cutlet bowls, oh my god, you would die. But then mm. he goes back to Russia and sees his grandfather and tries the piroshki. And then being a shitty little kid goes, hey, grandfather, have you ever had a, a katsudon? Have you ever had a pork cutlet bowl? And the grandfather kind of goes quiet and doesn't talk to him for the rest of the car ride. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. You've hurt his feelings. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, but then, no more Piroshki for you. And later, and I'm a tiny spoiler for a small plot point in Yuri on Ice, his grandfather doesn't come to his performance. And I'm like, you know, chewing on my hand because I'm like, oh, no, you've hurt his feelings so bad. He's not supporting you anymore. And then his grandfather meets him afterwards and he's made him pork cutlet piroshki with an egg sauce. Oh. And I'm just like, <gasps> food fusion. Oh, so much love. That sounds really nice, actually. It would be. You could, like, dip it. Because katsu is a little bit like schnitzel, but thicker, uh, with, like, a panko crumb. It's a beautiful thing. And so you combine that in the dough, and, yeah, it would be really nice. I totally eat that. But, yes, you need to watch Yuri on Ice because it's all about feelings. A gay ice skating anime about feelings is, like, it takes so many of my boxes. Mm -hmm. 
meanwhile, somewhere, <laughs> Ellie Stock and Elizabeth Dubois are listening to this and going and like banging, like talk about Yuri on Ice some more because they they are <laughs> they are my Yuri on Ice ship posting friends, them and Ali Brinkin right. and my friend Lexi. Oh, so great! All right, well, I am looking at the time. We should probably wrap up after I have completely derailed the conversation with Yuri on Ice. I know we talked about food the entire time, which is like typical, really. <laughs> and I'm okay with. And now I have to go <laughs> make breakfast, and so now I'm like completely starving. All right, Melissa, so if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? So I am on Twitter at Clutter and the Kindle and on Instagram at Clutter and Kindle because they don't have the same ridiculous restrictions for usernames. And I don't have a blog anymore, but I tweet a lot. So, yeah, you can find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming back. I am now exceptionally hungry, and I feel that I have, if not offended, at least riled up a good half my listeners about food opinion, so I expect some spirited conversation. Keep it clean, everyone. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, we all like what we like, and if you really like New York pizza, that pizza by the slice, if that does it for you, then good for you. If you get excited about bagels, that's great. You know, I don't like the same stuff that you do. It's just, I kind of want the stuff that I like to be here too, and I think that New York is big enough that we can have different kinds of pizza. That's all I have to say about that. We didn't even talk about pierogies, but I could talk about pierogies for a while. There are no pierogies in Australia, (laughs) and I think it's a travesty. Anyway, thanks for coming on, Melissa. This has been great. Thank you for having me again. Thank you very much to Melissa Bright for her time. For her signature drink, I was inspired by her market trip, so I've combined some fresh produce with local bourbon for a drink I've titled the Templeton. In a heavy base glass or shaker, combine one lemon wedge, two teaspoons of maple syrup, and two shakes Peychaud's bitters. Using a wooden spoon or a muddler, gently squish the lemon wedge so the juice comes out. Add a handful of fresh blueberries, and continue to muddle until the fruit is crushed but not pulped. Add ice and two ounces of bourbon. At this point, you can either strain this drink into a pre-chilled cocktail glass as an up drink, or pour it into a highball glass and top up with two to three ounces of ginger beer. It's up to you. Spend your time eating, gnawing, spying, and hiding. But be a merrymaker, not a glutton. Enjoy. Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. Fair warning, I am booked to the end of the year, but I'll happily give your idea a listen. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at the Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. Your elbow could slip and you could pledge $500. I wouldn't begrudge you it. Patrons can receive cursive tweets, a physical mail, early access to episodes, extra cocktail recipes. And I don't mention this a lot, but it also covers the hosting for the show. I've got a yearly bill for that coming up in October. And the money from the Patreon has certainly put a dent in that bill. And also, I just really appreciate it. Certain tiers of the Patreon come with special rewards like thanks on the show. So thank you very much to Kiana Rochelle, who is my K-pop buddy from St. Louis, who introduced me to Soul Taco and the power of Hoya. Ashley, you know what? Go to her Patreon. Here you go. Patreon.com slash K-I-A-N-A-R-O-C-H-E-L-L-E. She's a fantastic artist, and at my urging, she started a Patreon, so I want to send everyone there to make sure she gets all the support she needs. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can head on over to bit.ly slash themathofyou to find a playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one, including this song. It's a bit quiet right now, but it's Step Out by Jose Gonzalez. It's a really great track for your morning run if you do that sort of thing. Next week, it's the return of L. Collins. Come on in and pull yourself up a chair. Join me, won't you? Like I mentioned the DIY thing, and I, I tweeted it yesterday, but I need to reiterate how satisfying this was. I was at work, and I'm at this new job, and I've been there for like a month, and so I'm still finding out what desk objects I have or don't have. Till I need a stapler, I don't realize, oh, the stapler I have is actually broken. Is there a new one I could have? And so they're like, okay, well, you know, put, get you one on a stationary, and I get it. And I open it up, and literally, like, a cartoon, a spring, like, launches itself across the room. <laughs> oh, I saw your tweet about this. Yeah, because it's one of the, it's like this spring is about, I don't know, four or five inches long. And what it's meant to do is it loops into sort of the bed where the staples go, goes up and around this little plastic wheel, and then down and hooks into the base of the little hinge. And, <laughs> except, the little plastic wheel wasn't seated correctly. So me mm. and a co-worker, actually the boss's executive assistant, were sitting there with, like, a cuticle thing and like one of those pore removers like dentist tools like we were diffusing a bomb like just like oh okay and hook it and hold it there great and i'll get it and it's a bing fuck all right okay try again try again for like 25 minutes you know a sped up version of that is very macgyver you know whips out his tweezers and he's like well just a little you know here oh there you go magic stapler works now like it is it's a, sem- a sense of accomplishment you're like i engineered a thing this thing was broken and i fixed it you know, mm. there's a lomography kit called a constructor with a K, which is basically a build-it-yourself camera, all in like little plastic parts. And I was doing really well with all the like snapping together and making sure things fit, and that was all great until I got to the spring. 
and it was like a little like three loop and two end spring tiny like the size of a pinhead and I had to loop it onto a little peg and then bend it around and then hook it and for some reason I just could not do it and by the time I got it to work I had bent that spring in a shape that it didn't work this and that one spring oh, no. was like the crux of the whole thing because if you don't have, don't have a shutter you don't have a camera so it wouldn't spring back after I would press the button it would just close and I'd have to like flick it back up with my finger so now I have a paperweight oh that's unfortunate you can't order like another spring I may have sent them an email and their response was basically it's a DIY kit you know we get it in one piece we would have to take apart another one to give you a new spring oh geez oh that's sad but now it's there as a testament to my hubris you know honestly something like that would be a really interesting superpower like the ability to shrink parts of your body as needed you know like instead of just shrinking your whole self i guess you could do that but like shrinking your hands so you could fit in little tiny spaces and work these little tiny springs you know they really had a good idea with that whole child labor thing I saw an amazing Jeopardy contestant yesterday. I saw this briefly oh. and then I got distracted by cats. That, that happens. Basically, because we're, we're watching time shifted like three to six months, but this woman was like, answered the questions in the most like, what is this thing? And I'm just like, we're watching like, there's two, two young people that she's against. And we're like, how is she gonna, like she's quick on the buzzer. How are they not murdering her for every time I give an answer oh, like this? Man. What is Kenny Bunkport? That reminds me of an episode of Daria mm. where I don't know oh, if you yes, ever yeah, watched yeah, Daria. Yeah. Where Tiffany. where <laughs> oh, Tiffany is like leading the the career counseling thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She's like talking really slow and, and Daria's like prompting her with all these words like <laughs> Like, what are you trying to say? Let's get it over with. She goes, you made me lose my place. And then she starts over. <laughs> I <laughs> no, we're all think gonna die. She's done. I might. My favorite, yeah. though, was I was trying to... I was, okay, anytime you're trying to explain Tiffany from Daria to someone who has not seen Daria, they think you're just insane. Because I was trying to explain it to Kimiko, and it was just like, okay, so there's all these girls who are like the, the popular girls. And there's this Asian girl named Tiffany, and she she sort of trails of everything she says. So I went to YouTube and I found a compilation, and there's like a four minute compilation of just all the times that she said something like that. And my favorite, and all of the yeah, Stacy, this thing. <laughs> and yes. my favorite was just yeah, Stacy, tisk. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, great. I just perfect. it's a pleasure every time she's on the screen. Does this make me look bad? What about this? Did you like, oh, just God. treat me like an ugly? <laughs> I cannot put into words properly how much I love that show and how important that show was. Mm. Well, it's, it's no question. And the thing is, I came to it late and bootlegged because for so long none of the episodes were available because of the music licensing. My friend had a pirated DVD that she had bought in the Philippines and had brought to like our workplace to put on the little tiny TV we had in our breakout area. So I watched it and like the sound would go like crazy up and down because it was clearly just like taped off TV. But here's the thing, if you explain to someone how important Daria is and then you put on episode one, it doesn't quite, you have to settle in Yeah. with some of those shows. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Episode one, they were still finding their feet. They didn't quite have all the voices down. 
really the mm-hmm. the next couple episodes are where it really starts. It, it didn't take long to get going, but yeah, the next couple of episodes is where it finally starts to. There's so many quotable moments that when I'm talking to people, I want to think my brain does this thing where somebody will say a phrase and more often than not, probably about 85% of the time, it will trigger some quote from a TV or film. It's something I've watched. Really, Melissa, tell me about what that's like. <laughs> something I've watched over and over and over to the point where I can just quote it. For example, somebody will say, how much money do you have? And I'll just stare at them. And in my brain, Jane will go, Trent. And Trent will go, I have none. So I said nothing. <laughs> Very few people understand this, like with this little movie that's playing in my head. Honestly, I think that's one of the ways that you collect friends is you all have sort of the same shared references where you can quote a thing. And people won't go, what is that? They'll go, <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> the other weird thing about the Daria, you mentioned the Daria music for the, the DVDs slash streaming. They replaced it with just sort of generic music, which does change the experience, but it also makes you focus more on the show and not so much like the music itself, which was, you know, very of the time and very sort of just regular pop music. But one of the things that I noticed was that some of the sort of stock music that they use is the same 19, I can't remember, like 1950s or 1960s music that Always Sunny in Philadelphia uses. Ah. And it's this very, you know, it's like very happy <laughs> kind of 50s music that is always sort of incongruous with what's going on in Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But that's what I associate that music with. So when I heard it in Daria for the first time, I was like, oh, that just completely changed this. (laughs) (laughs) It's the warmth of vinyl, man. It's a richer tone. (laughs) I've wondered why Zappa was selling fish sticks. Oh, God, I love that. And they're like, oh, wait, it's not plugged in right. You're listening to the radio (laughs) track. Fucking poser. (laughs) Now let's play it facing west. Yeah, do you see this tattoo? I copied it out of a magazine. I love that. It's a picture of it. I love that one. You know what it says? And she thinks, I copied it out of a magazine. I copied it out of a magazine. <laughs> Kismet. It's funny because I was just listening to this, a wrestling podcast that I was to called How to Wrestling, where a new fan and an old fan go through and like follow a career of a certain wrestler. And they got to Goldberg, and he's got this huge tribal tattoo on his arm. <laughs> like It's like the most cliched tribal tattoo. And uh, I don't know if I a picture of it. It's also a terrifying picture because when he was younger, Bill Goldberg was a terrifying man. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that's like, like that episode of Star Trek where you have, they had the, like this sort of space scavenger hunt to find the first humanoid. Oh yes. The chase. Yeah. And it's like the most generic humanoid. That is the most <laughs> generic tribal tattoo. Like if you took all tribal tattoos and combined them together, that is what that would look like. And they were explaining the story, and Kevin was explaining to Joe what happened, and, and she was like, so, so what's the story with this tattoo? And he's like, okay, well, apparently he went into a tattoo parlor, and he's like, hey, man, I want to get a tattoo. I like all these tattoos, but I don't know. They're not really saying something to me. Do you have something like this, but, like, not this? <laughs> and apparently the tattoo artist, like, sat down and just drew a similar thing that looks kind of like the tribal tattoos at the wall. He's like, yes, cool. Put that on me forever. <laughs> oh, God. I just, yeah, people like that, I just, like, don't you value your real estate? Come on. (laughs) Admittedly, this is a man who is a professional wrestler whose job it is to throw themselves at the floor and not miss. Yeah, but contrast that with Dwayne Johnson. Have you seen Dwayne Johnson's new tattoo? It's all of them. Everybody knows he has this very 
intricate, traditional tattoo that he got that represents his culture in a very deep way. There was a whole ceremony. But recently, he got, he had a tattoo of a bull on his arm. Yeah, that's the Brahma bull. Yeah. That's his symbol as the rock. Yeah. So he recently got it. He called it the evolution of the bull, I think. And basically got it redone. And it is turned into this like full, like half sleeve bull skull. It's incredible. Okay. And it's very different than what he had before. He just put it up on Instagram recently. But he put so much thought into it. It's all like very representative of his life, the direction it's going he's been and you know even if you're have wrestling roots it doesn't have to be that if you know i have to think that they're not all brainless of i think dwayne johnson is a good representation of somebody who had wrestling roots but is not an idiot oh, i'll stand by it you you get some very very smart people in wrestling and oh my god this tattoo isn't it amazing it's so sharp it's, it's kind of terrifying <laughs> It's tingly. It's yeah, and he. I think he said in his comment, like in some light it looks intense, in some light it looks scary, which is really representative of him, I think, because he's a huge teddy bear, but he also can have his sort of rusty mean face. That is true. Right, we should probably get started <laughs> at some point. We've been going for like twenty minutes. Oh. We should probably get started. 